So, um, last week I, I started talking a message, or giving a message rather, about the three kinds of leaven. And I'm using PowerPoint uh, to help me make this easier. And so, and hopefully it'll help you to, to stay with me because I, I like to give a lot of scriptures, and as, as you guys know. So, what are the three kinds of leaven? The first is the, is the good kind of leaven. This is the number one, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13, 33, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Um, oh, no, uh, back, sorry. Thanks, Kim. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, a leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was eleven. So Jesus, in, in Matthew 13, and I talked about this last week, he gives a whole bunch of parables about the kingdom. And he says, the kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like that. And he gives, I don't know how many, five or six, and this is one of them. He likens the kingdom to leaven. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, in other places in this gospel, Jesus talks about two counterfeits ty- uh, counterfeit types of leaven, and these are evil counterfeits of the kingdom of heaven. And I went into a bit of detail last week, but this is the political spirit, which is what I spoke on last week, um, and the, that's the leaven of Herod, and, and today I'm going to be talking about the religious spirit, and that's the leaven of the Pharisees. So uh, just to give you a scriptural reference for that, that's Mark 8, 14 to 15, they had forgotten to take bread with them. They didn't have more than one loaf on the boat with them. Now, this is, this is wrong. Verse 15. And he was giving orders to them. Jesus was giving them orders now. This is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. He says, watch out! Exclamation mark. Watch out! Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Kind of a mysterious verse, right? What do you mean, Jesus? And even the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Is it because we forgot bread? And Jesus is like, are your hearts so hard you don't even understand yet what I'm saying? So Jesus made it clear after this, and I'm not going into detail because I did last week, but it's basically saying I'm not talking about bread. And I, I, I make the case that it's important because Jesus commanded us to beware of these things, that it's important for us to consider what, what is Jesus even talking about. And I made the case last week that I believe, and you might use different terminology, that's fine, but like I have here, that he's talking about the political spirit, which is the leaven of Herod, and the religious spirit, which is Eleven of, of the Pharisees. Um, I also made the case last week that I believe, and if you look through this scripturally, this is really interesting. You look through the Gospels from the moment Jesus was born until his death, these two demonic spirits were at work to kill him. You look through the Gospels, the minute Jesus was born, and I talked about this last week, Herod tried to kill him, right? When the Magi went to visit, he tried to kill him. And then throughout his life, these two demonic entities were constantly trying to kill him. And in fact, the interesting thing is, and I think it's not a coincidence that Jesus talks about them together here because often they work together. And I talked about that last week too. So you can see that in scripture, like Mark chapter 3, when Jesus healed a man and the Pharisees were so offended by that that they went and plotted with the Herodians how they might kill him. Right at the beginning of his ministry, and again, you can see that throughout. Now, this is relevant to us too, and I made the case that if you look through church history, these two demonic entities have been trying to destroy the work of the kingdom from, you look at the book of Acts on until the present time. You look, you just, you know, you look throughout the book of Acts, the, the political and religious spirit constantly were trying to destroy the work of Christ. 
And then you look at present time, and I, I mentioned, in, you know, if you think about it, and if you've unfortunately experienced or know someone who has experienced church splits, I would make the case, I'm guessing, probably 95% of the time, if you really think about it, 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 you can trace it back to one of these demonic spirits that are at work. The political spirit and the religious spirit have caused so much pain in the church that it's, it's ridiculous. It really is. And, and that's why it's important to talk about them and to expose them for who they are. Because like I talked about last week, if you're not, and, and, and sorry I keep alluding to last week's message, if you would like, you, you can actually, we posted the MP3 on the Facebook page, you can download it if you'd like. I, talk, I went into a lot of detail on the political spirit. But um, you just, it, it doesn't, like you see the politics, uh, the alliances, the power plays, right? Um, under the pretense of religion, these two demonic entities working together, causing a whole bunch of pain in the church. But not only that, so that's one reason it's relevant to us, but you look, I would make the case and argue that if you look at the uh, Babylonian system, in the, in the book of Revelations at the end times, the Babylonian Antichrist system is both a political and religious system and economic. So, so there's, this is really, really critical, and that's why I believe Jesus emphasizes so much. You've got to be aware of these things. You've got to watch out for them. And the tricky thing is, is that they look just almost like the kingdom. They're counter, that's why I'm calling them, they're counterfeit. Because what the enemy does is he tries to make them look good. They're wearing a facade. So unless you have revelation from God, it's, it's really hard to discern. They're really insidious. They're actors, especially the political spiritual, which is what I talked about last week. But just to refresh your memory too, because I, uh, if you move on, okay, um, Matthew 13. And <laughs> Lord, I just pray for a lot of grace for Kim because I have a lot of scriptures today, but like I always do. But anyway... I wanted to, to not go uh, into too much detail, because I did last week, but this particular scripture is important, I would say, especially for when we're talking about the religious spirit. Um, so for the sake of those of you who weren't here in particular, this is Matthew 13. This is just before Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to leaven. So, in another parable, he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed into his field. But while men slept... His enemy came and sowed tares. And I mentioned this last week, that that's actually the word darnella, and that is a weed resembling wheat. Isn't that interesting? It looks just like the good seed, in other words. It's hard to distinguish, it's hard to discern, and it's actually the enemy who sowed this stuff. So among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came to him and said, Sir, do you not... Sow good seed into your field? How, how then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time the harvest, I will say, Reapers to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them up in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So it's interesting, Jesus is saying, don't uproot, he's actually allowing these tares to grow together with the wheat, the good, because he said they look so similar to the good that if you try and do this, you might accidentally take out a good, a good seed that was actually sown by me. So for whatever reason, God's allowing these tares in his kingdom until the harvest. 
I didn't mention this, and I, I have opinions about why that's the case. One of them is to test, I think, our faith and whether we're going to hold to the truth. But that's another story. The interesting thing is he said, while man slept, the enemy came and sowed these tears. And I think that's not an accident that Jesus said, while we slept, because the enemy comes when we're not paying attention, if we're not paying attention, while we're sleeping, and he sows these tears. You, you know, in, in Matthew 24, for instance, when Jesus is like, watch and pray. Jesus, what do we do in the end times? The only instructions he gives us is to watch and pray. What do you mean watch and pray? Don't be sleeping, because if you sleep, this could happen. The religious spirit and the political spirit could seep in and, and wreak havoc. Right? So, if I confess word a couple chapters, next slide please. Um, Matthew 15. I went over this last week, and this is a... And again, I want to go over it just quickly today because this is such a critical scripture. Again, talking about the religious spirit. We can learn a lot from this. So this is verse 1, one through 13. Sorry, this, the print's kind of small. but Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother will be put to death. But you say if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. And that, again, I always stop there because I'm like, can you, like, can you fathom? Jesus, we've got to watch out for this because Jesus is saying our traditions can actually nullify the word of God. The Word of God is so powerful, and that's why that's perplexing. And that's why we've got to watch out that we're not exalting our traditions above what God is speaking, because if we do, we can actually nullify the Word of God, which is horrible. That's what Jesus is calling them out on right here. Something simple, what, washing your hands. Why aren't your disciples washing your hands? And Jesus just lets them have it. Hey, you are nullifying the Word of God for the sake of these traditions. So then he quotes Isaiah the prophet. You hypocrites, he says. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Merely human rules. And, and so, again, this is a critical message for us today because the church, this has been, since, like I said, the beginning, this has been a battle for the church not to give in to the religious spirit, to the traditions of man. Which the effect is, as you can see, it makes their hearts go away far, far from God. So it's a really critical thing that we don't give in to these things. Right? And that's why Jesus is so hard on the Pharisees. You know, Jesus had a lot of mercy, didn't he? He hung out with sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with drunkards. No problem. Who did he get angry with? The only people he ever got angry with. To the point where he, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you actors, were the Pharisees. And there's a reason, because he constantly had to confront this religious spirit. Like I said last week, it's the religious and political spirit that I would argue are the Antichrist spirit. Right? And so, anyway. So Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand, what goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Then the disciples came and asked him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up from the roots. Remember the parable we just read. 
Matthew 13, the tares of the right? Jesus here is actually alluding to that parable and saying, these are not planted by my Father, and every plant, every tear that's not planted by my Father is going to be uprooted. And a couple weeks ago, if you remember, I talked about Jesus using offense to reveal the heart. And here you can see that strategy, right? So Jesus is actually using this offense to uproot this religious spirit, these, the issues of the heart that aren't from God. And then he said, leave them. They're blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So I'm going to skip ahead two slides <laughs> for the sake of time. So I want to talk about not only discerning, but overcoming the religious spirit. Uh, one before this. So I want to give you a definition. And, and I, I like this definition. Now, I, this took me a while, uh, to be honest, to prepare this message today, because there's just so much I could talk about. And it's, what took me a long time is weeding through all this stuff I wanted to say and try and make it succinct, which I still haven't accomplished. So I'm going to see what I get through today. But um, I, I don't know if any of you have heard this, about this book that was written a long time ago from Rick Joyner, Overcoming the Religious Spirit. I was like, you know, I'm talking about the religious spirit this week. I should read it again, and I'm glad I did. Um, and I got this definition from there, and, and a couple of uh, uh, other things I'm going to say today uh, uh, got from that book as well. But that's the book in the upper right corner. So it's just a little booklet. Anyway, this is the definition in that booklet. A religious spirit is a demon which seeks to substitute religious activity for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Whoa. I think that's a good definition, so that's why I have it up there. I think, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Anything that tries to substitute the power and working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is often the root of it is a demonic religious spirit. So you can see here that its primary objective is to have the church having a form of godliness but denying its power. And that's a scripture from 2 Timothy 3.5. And notice at the end, I have the scripture down there highlighted in yellow, right? Having a form of godliness, but, but denying his power, have nothing to do with such people. We, so we're actually, it's an imperative to avoid, to that extent, avoid such people who are going to um, live this way. Now, of course, I'm, there's, there's mercy, and so I'm going to get to that too. But I, I, I want to make the case that Jesus was relentless, relentless in confronting this thing in his life and ministry. The early church was relentless in trying to confront this, and I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. So it's important for us, we actually have to be proactive in this, because if we sleep, so to speak, if we fall asleep and we're not paying attention, we're not watching for it, then it can seep in, right, and, and wreak havoc. The religious spirit... No, I'll say that in a minute. I want to give you a quote from Bono first. Bono. Bono, rather. You too. I don't listen to you too much, but I love this quote. This is, for all intents and purposes, next slide, his definition of religious spirit. I don't know if it is, but I like it. Okay. I often wonder if religion is the enemy of God. It's almost like religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. God's Spirit moves through us in the world at a pace that can never be constricted by any one religious paradigm. Amen. <laughs> that's right. Maybe that's a non-religious definition of the religious spirit. That's good. So, something to consider. And, and um, before I go on to, to something else, I wanted to mention this. It was the conservative 
zealous religious community that immediately became Jesus' greatest enemies. And that's why I think this is important for us to once in a while consider. Because we look at the Pharisees, if, oh, if Jesus was walking around now, I would be one of his disciples. Right? We, we would just, oh, those Pharisees are so bad. But honestly, those Pharisees were the zealous religious community of the day. The conservative evangelicals of the day, for all intents and purposes, right? Close to home for us, because if, if we're not careful, we could give in to the same thing. We're no better, in some ways, than our predecessors. Now, we have the Spirit of Christ, so that's awesome. They didn't. That helps a lot. But I'm going to speak about this later, that that's, we're not immune to this. Because history tells us and shows us over and over and over and over again... I would argue that this has been more destructive, the religious spirit and the political spirit, more destructive to the church than every false religion, every cult combined. Because this spirit has diverted and thwarted every single move of God in the history of the church. Every one of them. The cults, the false religions are easy to discern. They're easy to discern. You know they're false. It's this religious spirit that looks just like the real thing that is so insidious. And that's why you've got to confront it. You've got to confront it. In, your, in our own lives. It's easy to point the finger, and I'm going to get to this later, but we've got to confront it in our own lives. So, I, I have this point here. No one prayed more, fasted more, read the Bible more, had greater hope in the coming Messiah, or had more zeal for the things of God than the Pharisees, but they are his greatest opponents when he came. Right? They were his greatest opponents when the Word became flesh and the Messiah they've been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years, really. They're the ones who are his greatest enemies. So it's, imp- right? And I'm making these points to make it real, you know, we ourselves got to look in a mirror and be like, okay, right? Because I would guess that most of us fit this description. We're the zealous religious community, yada, yada, yada. Okay. So. Moving on then to talking more specifically about the religious spirit. The religious spirit builds on two basic foundations, fear and pride. Fear and pride. These are the two main ways that the religious spirit gets a stronghold. So, you know, the enemy walks around like a roaring, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking me to devour. He's looking for an open door, and these are... These are the open doors. So not only does he seep in through these two things, but he uses them for his own agenda. Now, next slide. James 4, 6. And why does he do this? And I'm going to make a case. Try, try to make a case. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5 say the same thing. They're actually quoting a scripture from the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 34. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Satan knows this. God resists the proud. So how does he get God, how does he get the church, rather, to get to a place where God is no longer showing up? Pride. I think the enemy knows this more than the church does, because he uses this over and over and over again. If he can get us proud, even of good things that we do, like how much we read our Bible, or how much we pray, or you know, uh, doing good things for the poor, if he can get us proud of those things, he knows that it's actually going to be counterproductive because if we're proud about them, God's not going to bless them. He's not, in fact, he's going to resist them. He's going to resist the church that becomes proud. 
So if the enemy can get in and make us proud, there goes the Holy Spirit, right? Like, like Bono said. <laughs> there, there's religion, right? And you go and... I'm getting ahead of myself. i got to watch what I say, too. But... <laughs> So, that's how the enemy gets in, with pride and with fear. I'll, I'll elaborate on, on that more later. The, the parable of the leaven, too, I want to say this. I, I think, you know, especially in this case, there's no coincidence Jesus used the parable of leaven, because if you think what leaven does, it doesn't add, add substance to the bread, it doesn't add any nutrition and no value, it just puffs it up, right? It's like, it's like religion, it adds no life to the church. It adds no power. It just puffs it up. And that's the strategy that the enemy uses. He tries to get his leaven into the church, right, so that we get puffed up. We think so well of ourselves, and then God resists the proud. I think it was Rick Joyner said this. I think. I don't remember. But, but it's true. I would rather have every demonic entity in hell resisting me than having God resist me. We don't want God resisting us, do we? So that's why we got to watch out for pride. And man, oh man, is that a challenging one. Okay, so uh, next slide, please. Now, <clears throat> again, I, I could, you could talk about so many things with this um, and, and characteristics. Oh, my goodness. I made the case that Herod was a type of the political spirit. And that's why Jesus said the leaven of, the Herod, of Herod, rather. I would argue that uh, uh, the Pharisees are a type of the religious spirit. And so just reading the Gospels, you can learn a lot about the, how the religious spirit works and operates. And so I was like, okay, I, I, I want what are what are some characteristics and important points that I'd want to share today? And I came up with six. I mean, there's more. There's <laughs> in that book I talked about. Rick Joyner has a whole uh, list of 25 checklists. Like, oh, you might want to go through all these yourself and see if any of them are applicable, so that you can you know uh, uh, repent of them and so forth. So there's a whole bunch you can talk about. But these are ones that I just that I thought, okay, these are important. Now, I don't know, and I don't think I'll have time to go over all of them today. We'll see. God, God could do miracles. But I at least want to go over a couple, okay? But here's all six up front, just so you know. So the first characteristic of the religious spirit is that it bases a relationship to God on personal discipline to gain his approval rather than the sacrifice of Christ, rather than the sacrifice of the cross. So that point I'll probably get through today. The second characteristic... The religious spirit leads people astray from the simplicity and purity and devotion to Christ, which is 2 Corinthians 11.3, by adding religious requirements that are not required by God. You can see how that's related to the first one. All these are kind of related. but The third characteristic, the religious spirit will glory more in what God did in the past than what he's doing in the present. The fourth characteristic the religious spirit will often demonize the current move of God. And you can see this at the life of Christ too, and I'll hopefully get to that. The fifth characteristic, just as the primary characteristic of the Pharisees was focusing on what was wrong with others while being blind to their own faults, the religious spirit tries to make us do the same. And the sixth characteristic, the religious spirit is characterized by man-pleasing or fear of man. It'll do things in order to be noticed, admired, and approved by people. Okay, so I'm going to go over each of these and turn in a little more detail. Some of them, if I get through, I, don't worry, I'm not going into all of them in a whole bunch of detail, but I just want to go at least hit on them if I can, and if not, like I said, we'll, 
we'll leave it. But the first one I want to talk about, because I think this is, I want to say this, to be sure, when I was, <laughs> I laugh because when I was really going, uh, writing this message or whatever, trying to figure out what to say and so forth, I, the Lord was convicting me so much on, the, on some of these points. So I want to give you these points to say, look, this is something, if we can examine our own hearts, this is something that I think all of us deal with to some extent. Some of these things, to be honest. And so the key is, okay, if I can see these in my own life, and, you, and if the Lord, you allow the Lord to convict, then that's good. He's bringing it to light so that we can change. Right? That's the point. The Holy Spirit convicts us for that. So it's a good thing. And I, I don't want to make it look like I'm pointing the finger like I have it all together because I don't. I definitely do not. And I know this because, like I said, I was being convicted from a lot of these things. So some of these points I'm emphasizing are for a reason because I think a lot of people struggle with these things in the church. Um, just from conversations I've had and so forth and, and some of my friends. So... The religious spirit bases a relationship to God on personal discipline, okay, to gain his approval rather than the sacrifice of Christ. And I have here the motivation for doing this can either be fear or pride or a combination of both. And I made that point earlier. Remember, fear and pride are the foundation. The destructive combination of fear and pride. And that's the, and if you reflect, you can see how the enemy might use either or or a combination of both to make us base our relationship to God off of personal discipline rather than off the righteousness of Christ. So something to consider. The Pharisees were the greatest opposers of God and his Messiah when he came. Why is this the case? I'm sure there's a bunch of reasons, but one of them is Jesus represented the greatest threat to that on which the Pharisees had built their whole lives. In other words, righteousness by their own works. Jesus was the biggest threat to their whole religious system. They spent their whole lives Right? Trying to gain favor with God based on righteousness and works. And Jesus was the antithesis of what that looks like. Because he was paying the price for everyone so they no longer have to do that. Right, So there was a threat to their whole system and philosophy. Those who attempt to uh, live by their own works will often become enraged at those who take their stand on the righteousness of Jesus. And there's always this, uh, uh, you can see in Jesus' time, the Pharisees got enraged at Jesus. But you look at the early church too, people got enraged, especially the Pharisees in Jerusalem, enraged at Christianity because it was such a threat to their whole system. That's why Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, was so enraged against Christians. Paul the Apostle, I love, I love this. He, he's a poster child of grace because if anyone had the religious spirit, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and, and I don't have time, but if you look in Philippians chapter 3, he goes, he's like, hey, I, I was perfect. I was the Pharisee, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? But he got, thank God he got delivered, because he actually killed Christians, and he, he helped that happen, right? He was involved with this antichrist system and spirit, that religious spirit that was thwarting the work of God. Then he got delivered from a miraculous encounter, thank God, in Acts, Right? And that's one way to get free from the religious spirit, encountering God. And that's what we're all about in this church. Encountering God will set us free, just like Paul. Complete 180 degree turn with Paul. So what's awesome is Paul became the greatest champion of the grace of God, went from the Pharisee of Pharisees, the poster child of the religious spirit, to the poster child of grace. And what I love... I want to go over a little bit of the book of Galatians because thank 
God for the book of Galatians. Thank you, Jesus. The book of Galatians is in the Bible. The book of Galatians has been a light to the church for 2,000 years because of the susceptibility of us going to this direction. And in fact, you look at the Reformation 500 years ago, Martin Luther, this was his book, the book of Galatians, confronting the religious spirit and political spirit of his day and saying, no, it is by grace and grace alone that you're saved, right? So what I love about the book of Galatians is it shows a confrontation with the religious spirit. The whole book is Paul confronting this, saying, don't let this in your church, okay? So um, it's kind of interesting because I was... I don't even know if if I need to say this, but I was going to talk about this last, and I really felt like the Lord wanted me to make this the first point, and to actually go into some detail, just giving some scriptures from the book of Galatians to show you how important it is to confront this and how Paul was so bold about it, because that's what it takes. There's a reason why Jesus was so angered by this and why he took such a bold stance against the religious spirit, because we have to be relentless. Right? Because, it, like I said, it seeps in. It's like the enemy comes in when we're not expecting it to sow these things. So Galatians 1, 6 to 10. Again, confronting the religious spirit. This is Paul speaking. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live uh, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert, pervert the gospel of Christ. It's a perversion. But even if we're, if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach, you let them be under God's curse. This is serious stuff. Paul's saying you be under God's curse if you give into this thing. And then he repeats it if that's not enough. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. I, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Remember, the last point in my mouth, point six, is that it operates to the approval and fear of man. So Paul's like, hey, I'm not giving in to that man-pleasing spirit. If I was, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. So it's important for us to catch ourselves. And like I said last week with the political spirit, that's one of the characteristics, the fear and approval of men. Galatians 2.1.5. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. He's talking about the gospel, meeting privately with those who are esteemed as leaders. I presented to him the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running in, or had been running in uh, vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he's a Greek. Verse 4. This man arose because some false believers. Paul's calling these people false believers. Remember. The tares, they look just like the genuine believers. And over and over and over again throughout the Bible, they warn us about the false believers who are trying to put us under a slave to this bondage. So he said these false believers who had, had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Uh, verse 11 through 14. Now, this is an interesting confrontation. That Honestly, every time I read this, I'm kind of I'm perplexed that Paul is so bold about this that he would confront Peter, the apostle that Christ gave, right? The, the chief apostle to the Jews. So when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
That's how insidious this thing is. Even Peter gave into it, okay? For the approval of others, and we'll see this in a minute. For before certain men came from James, another apostle, the brother of Jesus actually, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he's afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. Remember, fear of man. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. See how this multiplies like leaven, right? Even Barnabas, Paul's companion, got into this. And it was subtle, wasn't it? They just started separating themselves and not eating with the Gentiles anymore, right? That's how it creeps in, something that subtle. When I saw they're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish Jewish customs and traditions? Now, um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over this. Other than this, uh, uh, sorry, this is verse 15 through 21. Paul's just saying over and over, it's by grace, faith in Jesus, not by works of the flesh, not by human traditions, not by these things, these customs. Okay, so I'm just paraphrasing. But I love verse 20. This is just a classic verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for it. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Wow, 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 wow. Right? Christ died for... That's how serious this is. And Paul's saying it. If, if there was another way to heaven... Right? Jesus would not have gone to that extent to die for our sins so that we can have salvation through that sacrifice. And he's saying, if you're still trying to gain your righteousness in that way, then he died for nothing. Right? This is how bold Paul is. And this is important for us to consider because like I, like I said, it's by, it's subtle, but we can get, get into this, right? Righteousness by our own works. Trying to become more righteous, trying to get closer to God, trying to purify ourselves from self-abasement, whatever it might look like, all of it is the same thing. right? He's confronting the Jews and the Hebrews because they were trying to bring in the law of the Jews, which is still an issue for us, right? The Old Testament, New Testament, whatever. But this can become as subtle as us doing this in order to please God. I'm praying for two hours to please God, right? You foolish Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. Who's bewitched you? Paul's calling this witchcraft going under this spirit. Who bewitched you, put you under this spell? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now spirit? Are you trying to finish by the means of the flesh? How many times does that happen, right? Somebody gets saved. Then they come to the church, okay, now you got to do this, 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 and this, jump through these holes and loops and whatever, and then you'll be okay, right? It just never ends. It's just a vicious cycle of, okay, now, Paul's confronting that here, right? If you began in the Spirit, now are you trying to maintain that by works? Because no, it's either or. It's not, you can have both end. Okay. Sake of time, Galatians 5, and I'm like, I really felt like I was supposed to just talked a lot from the book of Galatians. And I, I would recommend you guys to just, we should read this regularly as in, in our personal lives. Galatians 5, 1-6. Confronting the religious spirit. 
It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the the whole law. You are trying to be justified by the law, but alienated from Christ. You've fallen from grace. You know, I've heard a lot of people say falling from grace means you're in sin. Paul, do you know what falling from grace is contextually? It's giving in to this demonic religious spirit of self-righteousness and trying to earn righteousness by your own works. That's what alienates you from Christ. That's what makes you fall from grace. Right? So... For through the Spirit we eagerly await for, for, uh, by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, has value. For, okay. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. It's as simple as that. Galatians 6, okay, moving on 7. Talking about the religious spirit and the leaven of the Herod, uh, Pharisees. rather. Look at this. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Using the same analogy in this context as Jesus said, the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul's even alluding to that. It's just like leaven. He gets in there, puffs you up. It agitates, and that's how it works. That's why he calls them agitators. I have confidence in you, that the, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? And the stumbling block, remember we talked about offense, of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. This is in the Bible. Every time I read that, I'm like, Paul, <laughs> you're wishing people would emasculate themselves. You're putting curses on people. That's how bold and how important it is to confront this thing in our own lives. Here's a solution. This is later on in the chapter. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, the key. To one of the main keys of getting free from the religious spirit, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That's it. It's as simple as that. You've received the Spirit, you'd be led by the Spirit, you're no longer under these laws. You no longer have to earn righteousness by your own works. It's all by being led by the Spirit, and that's the essence of the new covenant. So, um, next slide. Something to consider. Now, I want to say this because there's always another side to this. There's always, you see, the, the path of life, there's two sides of ditch. And if we go on one extreme, often what happens, you can see this, people read the book of Galatians and go to the other ditch. And Paul confronts that in verse, if I had time in chapter 5. Now, lawlessness is also going to prevent you from going into the kingdom. So you have to stay on the path of life, which is being led by the Holy Spirit. Something to consider, though. Discipline and a commitment to self-sacrifice are essential qualities for every believer to have. Okay? So they're not wrong. It's not wrong to be sacrificial. It's not, in fact, it's required. (laughs) So how do you navigate through this? It's the motivation behind them that determines whether you're being driven by a religious spirit or by the Holy Spirit. Fasting's not wrong. Praying five hours a day isn't wrong if the Lord's leading you to. Okay? The motive is what matters. So remember, a religious spirit motivates through fear and guilt or pride and ambition. So if you're praying two hours a day because of guilt, I'm not praying enough, or fear, maybe I'm not praying enough, I should pray more, or pride and ambition, look at me, I'm praying so much. 
Or, oh, I'm going to pray an hour more because then I'll be even more spiritual. Not good. You're getting bad territory. The motivation, if it's by the Holy Spirit, is going to be love for the Son of God. I want to pray for two hours because I love the Lord, I love His presence, and I'm getting closer to Him. Right? So it's all about the motive of the heart. Right? And that's what the religious spirit tries to make it about externals, right? With the Pharisees, but it's not. It's all about the motives of the heart. All right. Next point, and like I said, don't worry, I probably won't go over all these. But I, I want to hit on the first few at least. The first couple, and again, I'm not going to go into that much detail. The first point was the most. Adds religious requirements that are not required by God. And you can see how that's related to the first one. So I have Matthew 23, verse 4. Matthew 23 has the seven woes to the religious Pharisees. If you want to learn a lot about the religious spirit, you can just read Matthew 23 because Jesus confronts them like there's no tomorrow. Woe to you because you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Here's one of them. You tie a penny, cover some loads, put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Religious requirements. Remember we talked from Matthew 15 about the traditions of the elders? They got so offended. How come your disciples aren't following our traditions? The traditions of the elders. Right? And Jesus really royally lets them have it. You break the command of God for the sake of your tradition. Remember, teachings merely by human rules. And we always have to consider, why are we doing the things we do? Is it because we always done it that way? And often it is. I would argue even the way we do church, you go to almost any church, the way we do it is almost the same, regardless of the denomination you're in. Right? And that's fine. That's fine. You need some kind of way to do it, to gather. And have, but I'm just saying, if you get angry because you because maybe one week you're not doing that way, and I talked about giving an example last week, then you've got to be concerned. Am I potentially nullifying the move of the Holy Spirit for the sake of my traditions? Um, uh, next slide. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I'm afraid lest the serpent deceived by Eve, by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Salvation is simple, yet there's a major strategy of the enemy to dilute the power of the gospel by having us add to it, which is how Eve was deceived. What are you talking about? Why don't we look? What do you mean by this? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. How did the, how did the enemy get an inroad? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. Then the enemy said, You'll not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. He's using pride. This is a religious spirit. We're using pride to get an inroad. You'll be like God. right? By your own, by eating this fruit, you can become like God. That was the temptation. But what I, why I have this in yellow? Notice Eve said, you must not touch it. Did God actually say not to touch it? Uh, next slide, Genesis chapter 2, 15 and 17. What did God really say? Right? He said, and I'll just fast forward, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, nothing about touching it. Eve added that. And the enemy took advantage of that and made her question it, right? 
And then he got an inroad and deceived her because she added to God's word. Now that's subtle. That is subtle. But that's part of how the religious spirit gets in. By adding to God's word requirements that he doesn't require. Right? And the enemy knows this. Adding to God's word and his commands is just as destructive in some ways as taking away from them. Those who think that they can so flippantly add to the word of God don't respect it enough to keep it when the testing comes. Like Eve, right? So so the enemy knows this. If he can um, subtract from the word or or add to it, he knows that our false eminent, just like Eve. And that's why in 2 Corinthians, the verse, just like Eve was deceived, I was concerned you're deceived from the simplicity of the devotion of Christ because this is that simple. But you're adding to it. You're adding all these requirements that God doesn't even require of you. Now I want to show you this in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Adding to the word of God. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ, the elemental spirit... Yeah, I'm going to fast forward. Sorry, down there. Since you died with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world, did you submit to its rules? Remember, we're talking about rules that aren't of God, that humans are making. Don't handle this. Don't taste. Don't touch. Isn't that sound familiar, right? With what Eve said. Um, these rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with us, are based on merely human commands and teachings, just like in Matthew 15, what Jesus confronted with the Pharisees. Such regulations indeed have been, this is why they're so deceptive, they have an appearance of wisdom for their self-imposed worship, in another translation, NASB says self-made religion, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. Self-made religion, Right? False humility, it's actually taking pride in humility, self-abasement, purifying ourselves. Don't touch this, don't do that. Oh, that looks so good. But God never told us not to touch it. And that's why it's so insidious. That's why it's, it looks so good on the outside. If you're not careful, though. And this is a key. So, so see to that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Okay, so again, it's as simple as being led by the Holy Spirit and staying pure to the simple devotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation by faith through grace. Now, I'm glad, because I still have a little bit of time, and I want to hit on this at least one more, if not two more points, because they're so important, I think, for us. And I'll tell you why. This is the next one. We'll glory more in what God did in the past than what he's doing in the present. My, my, my. Is that not... uh, I'll get into this, but that is such... If you look through church history, such a deception that makes people fall and thwart the movement of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to just share this quick. I'm not going to go into detail, but Matthew 23, 29. He's talking, he's cursing the Pharisees. He's saying, woe to you. You Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs to the prophets, you decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we've lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you're the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, who can escape the... Okay, so he... I'll just paraphrase. He's saying, I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you teachers, and you're going to still, you're going to kill them just like your ancestors did. But yet you're exalting your ancestors, or the prophets of old, and saying, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have done that. But Jesus is saying, actually, you're going to. You're going to prove yourselves wrong. Because you're exalting the past. 
You're exalting the prophets of old, but now when I send prophets now, the new move of God, you're going to do the same thing your ancestors did. Right? Now, I have this quote from John Wimber, and I love it. I don't have it on the slide. I'm just going to read it to you. I read, this was on Facebook, and I, I was curious, because it was a vineyard pastor who said, the title was, Would John Wimber Attend a Vineyard Church if He Was Still Living? And, he, and he, he had a whole blog on it. He gave this quote that he heard Wimber say in the 80s on the tape. And I just listened, okay? Organizations conform to historic ideals. A statement has been made. A founder has been elevated. We are the such and such church. We are the Wesley, uh, Wesleyan church. We're the dot, 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 fill in the blank. And on and on and on and on. It could be any founder at any period of time in the centuries past. The further we get removed from that founder, the more structured, the more traditionalist we become. To the point where we get great volumes of books trying to strain out every nuance and thought that man has during his lifetime, trying to figure out everything he meant by everything he said. In that process, we come, become rather dead. In these traditions, we begin taking on the traditions of men. Keep in mind that most of the men who founded these great churches that are existing today would not be in those churches, those same churches today. For the very reason they left their churches in their day. If you think Martin Luther would go to a Lutheran church today, you're out of your gourd, to use a theological term, because they were men after God, not after traditions. They were men hearing God and moving with God and doing what they could do to actualize God in their lives, and that's why what we need today. Now his conclusions, Wimber Wood, still attended in your church, and that's great. I love that quote, though, because that's what we're talking about. Now, in contemporary times, we're not talking about killing prophets now. We're talking about killing the move of God and exalting the past. Exalting these men and women of God. Oh, if I only lived then. If I was... <laughs> I won't go there, but if I was in so-and-so's meeting, if you look at the pe- how, how much they got persecuted... I'll give an example. Like uh, the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. People now, like in the conservative evangelical, and there's nothing wrong with them... I love, I'm an evangelical, probably. <laughs> Jonathan Edwards, right? He's so awesome, right? You look at what happened in those meetings, it was the same manifestations that happened in Toronto and that are happening in Toronto. Laughter, falling down, everything, shaking, quaking, you name it. They had so many people persecuting them at that time, the conservative evangelicals of their day, Right? And it was funny to me when, you know, Toronto started breaking out, everyone went back to Edwards and said, look, this is nothing new. This has happened throughout church history. The same thing happens that we exalt those men and women, just like the Pharisees did. We build tombs to them, we write about them, all these things. But when the move of the Holy Spirit comes, we do the same things that the people in their day did when they persecuted those men and women. John, sorry, Luke 7, 28 to 35. I talked about this before, but I'm gonna I'm gonna emphasize two things I haven't before. Talking about this, exalting the past over the present move of God. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist here. No one greater among women than John, he says. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now look at verse 29. This is interesting. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. 
They rejected the purposes of God for themselves by rejecting the past move of God. They missed it. Because they weren't baptized from John, if you will, symbolically, he was the last move of God, the Holy Spirit. They rejected it. They rejected the purposes for their own lives. Then they, they got into the religious spirit. There were a lot of prophecies around Toronto saying, you reject this now. You're not going to be able to embrace the next move. Now, by the grace of God, people will. Because a lot of people came along. Right? But this is the same thing we got to watch out for today. That we don't reject whatever God's going to do next just because it looks different to us. So Jesus went on to say, what then? Shall I compare this people, this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, but you say he has a demon. Next point, and I won't have time to demonizing the move of God. Right? They said, John has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton, here's a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her children. I think it's interesting. He, he gives them a parable here of music. We sang a dirge for you, right? You didn't cry. We played the flute. We played a wedding song. You didn't dance. I came in two different ways, and you rejected me either way. Right? You called John a demon. You said he has a demon. You said I'm a glutton. So I came this way last time. You rejected me. I came a totally different way this time. You're still rejecting me. That's what this generation's like, he says. Now, the reason this is interesting that he uses music is because how many church splits have there been because of music? Because of worship music. I, I, I'm telling you, like, I don't, I, I, it's not like I'm very old, but I know of a whole bunch. It's like, it's, it almost seems like that's the number one thing that causes church splits. Oh, let's use hymns. Let's not use hymns. Let's do this style. Let's not do this style, okay? Bam. Okay, we're starting our own church then if you won't let us do these hymns or whatever. We have got to watch out for that. My goodness. Right? And it's crazy because a lot of people, when the Holy Spirit was moving, you can almost go in, and I don't want to point the finger, but you can go in certain churches. Oh my goodness, did I just walk into the 70s? You can tell where they left off, right? It's like, this is when the Holy Spirit was moving. All our music sounds like from that era still. Even the decorations are like that still. It's still I'm telling you, the religious spirit, and you got to watch out. Because if we start getting into the trap, it's got to sound like this every single week, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We're going to be just like those churches who seem stale religious because they couldn't get past it. Because they leveled off it when the Holy Spirit was moving. You can go in churches, it's like, did I enter the 1800s? I know, and people pride themselves on that. I go in this church, I heard someone saying that they, they, they pride themselves on that. That's fine. If you think it's cool, right? But he said, you can go in our church and it's just like church was 1,500 years ago. That's the way we like it. That's how it should be. You know, and, and you go in this church, it's like, wow, I am 1,500 years ago, <laughs> right? With the decor and everything. That's fine. But if you're not careful and you stay in that, how many of you know you're going to reject a new thing because it doesn't look like that? So I'm telling you, this is something we have to be careful with because history shows us every single revival was rejected by the previous move of God. And I've said this before, I'll say it again because we personally have to watch out for this because we're part of the past major revival. That we don't reject the next thing God's doing. You look in history, right? The Methodists rejected the Pentecostals when they came. The Pentecostals rejected the Charismatics officially in 1967 in their magazine saying, this isn't of God, we reject it. 
right? The Charismatics rejected the Word of Faith movement. You look at Calvary Chapel, it was the Jesus movement. They rejected the vineyard. Then who rejected Catch the Fire? It's the same thing, and we're no better than them. We are not better than them, and we're just as susceptible to this. And that's why this is so important, that we don't give in to this. Just because it looks different, no way. We're not going there, and we have to examine our hearts about these things. We have to step back and say, am I going there? Because if we are, then it's dangerous territory. Amen. So, I'm not going to finish my next points, but this is related. We'll demonize the next move of God. This isn't the Holy Spirit, it's a demon. Does that sound familiar? Right? We, we experience that still. You look at this in Jesus' day, and I'm going to go over these scriptures, but look, John 8, 4, 6, 53, they called him a demon. Jesus, you're demon-possessed, the Pharisees said. Is it not true you're demon-possessed? Over and over and over again. Matthew 12, 24. The Pharisees heard this said, Is it not by Beelzebub, the devil, the prince of demons, that these fellow drives out demons? Now, this is all I'm here going on, and I said I wouldn't, but... Look what Jesus says, Matthew 10, 24 to 25. The student is not above the teacher, nor is the servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like the teacher and a servant like the masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more are the members of his household? Jesus, this is going to happen to you. They're going to say that you're of the devil when the Holy Spirit moves, just like they did to me. You're no better than me. That's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. And I'm showing you that reality. The point is, so What? If it looks weird, and it's the Lord, we're on board. If it looks different than the 90s, so be it, we're jumping in, right? Do I have an amen with that? We're jumping in even if it looks totally different. Because I don't want to become like the past move of God, the cliche that we're going to reject a new thing. No way. No way. If it sounds like a dirge, so be it. If it's another wedding song, so be it. We're in. Amen? All right. So I will end there. <laughs> so why don't we pray now I want to say this again I was convicted so much from some of these things so it, there's no condemnation and I remember Rick Joyner said if you're reading this book and while you're reading this book and hearing this message you're thinking oh I wish so and so was here to hear this message chances are you're dealing with a religious spirit <laughs> right so why don't we examine ourselves and not point the finger and say look am I, are some of these things by our own work so some of these things um, that I mentioned, and I'll just throw them out there again while I close, and we'll pray and ask God for uh, mercy if necessary, because God knows we all need mercy, which mercy is really an antidote to these things, to the religious spirit, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry, Rick Joyner, Overcoming the Religious Spirit. It's just a little 60-page or so booklet. If you get his book, over, I forget the name of that book, but uh, that, that's the booklet there, Overcoming the Religious Spirit of Joyner. So, just to reiterate before I pray, okay? And let's examine ourselves as I say these characteristics of the religious spirit. The first characteristic, the religious spirit bases a relationship to God on personal discipline to gain his approval rather than the sacrifice of Christ. Second characteristic, the religious spirit leads people astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ by adding religious requirements that aren't required by God. The third characteristic, the religious spirit will glory more in what God has done in the past than what he's doing in the present. 
The fourth characteristic, the religious spirit will often demonize the current move of God. And these last two characteristics I didn't talk about, and the last one I did really quick, but the fifth characteristic, just as the primary characteristic of the Pharisees was focusing on what was wrong with others while being blind to our own faults, the religious spirit tries to make us do the same. Right? Jesus said, who are you to say, when you have a plank in your eye, look at the dust of my brother's eye, right? Over and over again. Sixth characteristic. The religious spirit is characterized by man-pleasing fear of man, and I talked a little bit about that, fortunately, in Galatians. will do things in order to be noticed, admired, and approved by God. Sorry, by people, yeah. We want to be approved by God. <laughs> by people, rather. Thank you. So, if any of these are convicting you right now, or maybe some more than them, because like I said, we're all in this together. I'm sure, you know, we're all to some extent have to uh, uh, examine ourselves, but okay, look, I might be in, you know, giving a test, but it's subtle. That's why Paul had to confront it so harshly in Jesus. So we have to confront it relentlessly in our lives. So let's pray. Whoa. Hmm. Father, we just thank you so much. For your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much that as you delivered Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, from this demonic religious spirit, this antichrist spirit, in the same way, by encountering your presence, you're going to deliver us. Because you're no respecter of persons. Father, I thank you that you give grace to the humble. So as we humble ourselves before you, Lord, we're believing that you're going to give us the grace to overcome these things. That we're going to overcome pride. That we're going to overcome arrogance. We're going to overcome self-righteousness. We're going to overcome self-abasement. We're going to overcome false humility. We're going to overcome all these insidious demonic things that try and thwart us from simple devotion to Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you free us from our fears, from our guilt, from our shame, from our pride, from our selfless ambition from any of these things that would give an inroad to the religious spirit in our lives. And Lord, I just ask that you enable us to be led by your Holy Spirit as you say that those who are led by the Spirit of Christ, by the Spirit of God, are no longer under the law. We just embrace completely your Holy Spirit in our lives, and we say we're going to follow you. We're going to follow you even if it looks weird. (laughs) We're not going to reject you in Jesus' name by your grace. And we say that by faith, knowing that it's possible because even Peter was deceived. But we thank you for the men and women in our lives who are going to confront us if we ever go in that direction. So we are believing you by faith for this, God. And I thank you that you are a merciful God. And if there's any way we participated in these things, that you're not only going to deliver us, but you're going to forgive us and set us completely free. I thank you, Father, that you say that there's no condemnation in Christ. So I just break off any condemnation, any guilt, any shame from this message, and that you would just fill us with your spirit completely. Refresh us anew, Lord, as you say that the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, I release that now. The genuine leaven of the kingdom of heaven, peace and joy and righteousness in your Holy Spirit. So I thank you, Father, for your goodness. And I just thank you, Lord, for your deliverance. And I thank you, God, that you are with us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so it, (laughs) 
<laughs> thank you, Jesus. Thank you. We just want to pray for you. Now, whatever it is, like I said, if you want to just say, hey, I've been hurting the church from this religious spirit, fine. Because the political spirit often uses the religious spirit. I talked about that last week. Or I've given it to this. That's fine. If you need to confess or whatever, you don't need to. If you want to just sit there, soak, examine yourselves. If you want to encounter God, like I said, like Paul the Apostle, to set us free from this. And we want to pray for that too. Whatever it is. We need healing. Uh, you, you can come on up and we'd love to pray for you. Um, the rest of you, God bless. Feel free to hang out, fellowship, whatever you'd like to do. Um, and and uh, God bless you. Have an awesome week. And a happy Remembrance Day. In Jesus' name, amen.